Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on August 10th, 2014. Today's message is titled, Stepping Out, by Dr. Lyle Schrag, and is based on scripture, Psalm 46. And I'd ask you to pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, in obedience to your claim in our lives, we give ourselves to you. And Lord, as we come into this place, Lord, we do so deliberately in obedience to you. And as we come, Lord, we come uh, seeking to hear your voice, that you might move in our lives and move in such a way that our lives might take a greater shape toward the man or the woman that you've created us to be, and that, Lord, you would... You would fill us with a sense of confidence and with a hope and with an ability to live in accord with your creation. But I pray, Lord, in confession that oftentimes I am more concerned about how to live a successful life and to find solutions for all that that are around me. And Lord, you know the needs of this congregation and Lord, you know the emotional needs, the physical needs, Lord, the the career needs, all those things that percolate in our souls, that keep us awake at night. We want solutions so that we can live a successful life. And yet, Lord, what you give us is yourself. So, Lord, I pray that you would teach us the lessons of reliance upon you. That, Lord, we might find in a life of that is dependent upon you, that there is the working of the Spirit within that brings us not only an everlasting life, but, Lord, a life that is abundant and is according to your will. So strengthen us, Lord, with your, the knowledge of your presence and strengthen us, Lord, with that presence. Strengthen us, Lord, with the life that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, who loves us, and who is with us now. This we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, it's good to be back together with you. I've been away for several weeks, uh, and I'm going to get back into the book of Psalms. We started up in the book of Psalms uh, uh, before I left, and this morning I'm going to ask you to return there as we turn to the 40. Sixth Psalm, Psalm 46. Now, first of all, I got to tell you, this is probably one of the most colorful psalms that you're ever going to find. I, I asked uh, 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 Pastor Grant to, to to at least put into the worship service this morning a, a song that was inspired by this particular psalm, and it was a mighty fortress is our God. Look at by, uh, verse seven and verse eleven. Uh, the same line is repeated. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the German, and you can test me on this, is Eine Feste Berg, a mighty fortress. And it was Martin Luther who was inspired by this psalm. And he wrote it and it became an anthem. The sort of anthem that the church took forward and, and sang it and it resonated in heart and spirit and it It just kind of bled confidence into the soul. So it's a powerful psalm, and it's a very colorful song. In the annals of Bible translation, I'm not even quite sure why I'm sharing this with you, but it's always something fascinating to me. This psalm really has a very colorful history. 
Uh, how many of you would have the King James Version in, in, in hand here right now? Okay, you, nope, you don't, it's not, oh, if you have the King James Version, I want you to tr do this. I want you to count 46 words from the beginning of the psalm and, 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 and see what word you come up with. Uh, you, while you're counting, let me tell you what the word is. The word is shake. And if you then count 46 words up from the bottom of the psalm, from the end of the psalm, uh, what word are you going to come up with? I'll tell you what the word is. Spear. Now, the history of biblical translation is that uh, there was a guy in England named William Shakespeare who was friends with uh, a group of translators that were under orders by King James to be able to translate the scriptures. And on his 46th birthday, they had actually arranged this translation of the psalm. And quite frankly, it is very accurate to the Hebrew, but when it came out, this was their kind of subtle and very uh, a, a way of giving him a, Chris, a birthday present and saying Shakespeare. So aren't you glad I shared that with you? One of those little trivial things that you can be able to, to, to shock and amaze people with? Shakespeare is in this psalm. I'm intrigued with things like that. It helps me remember psalms. It helps me remember, and, and, and quite frankly, this is a psalm that is intended to be remembered. So let me start with the psalm, with the little inscription that you'll find at the very beginning. You, you'll, you'll probably have it written in your Bibles this way. It is for the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth. Now, if you're from, the Tex from Texas, You'll see that it's a psalm that is written for memory. Remember the Alamoth. Uh, it is a song. I, that was supposed to be funny. But now, before you just run right by this little bit, let me explain a bit. The word Alamoth is derived from the Hebrew word Alma, which literally means a maiden or a young woman. And some scholars say that this was written for a choir of young women. But in fact, in those days, there was no such choir allowed in the temple. In fact, the choir was made up of what we have already listed, the sons of Korah. It was a male chorus. And so the question is, what do we make of this term, the Alama or the Alamoth? In 1 Chronicles 15.20, we find that the harps of the temple were to be tuned in that verse to the Alamoth, which kind of helps explain this psalm. And the commentary explains that it would give the harps a maiden-like tone. In other words, it would take it to a higher pitch, to a soprano sort of pitch. And in music theory, or at least in the music theory of that day, raising the pitch of a tune was guaranteed to make the psalm unique and easy to remember. It, it would carry a message that, that you, would, 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 you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't forget. And so raising that pitch and, and, and making it a memorable thing, you get an idea that this psalm was written to be inscribed on the heart of God's people so that it would be engraved in their memory, and then they'd be able to take it wherever they went. So that's what the substance of this psalm is intended to do, to be taken into life wherever you would go. So now let's listen to this Alamoth psalm. As I read verse 1, it starts with this way. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, therefore, we will not fear. Now I'm going to read that verse, verse 1 along with the first part of verse 2 as one line because the thought all hangs together on that phrase. It sets the theme and it stands alone as the one single truth that covers everything else in the psalm. 
Twice again in the psalm, you will find that theme expanded, the one theme that is set in already verse 1. You'll find it in verse 7, and you'll find it in verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, for just a moment, look at the psalm as a literary assignment. If you look at it, you will find that the psalm is divided into three sections, and each one of those sections ends with a single word that you'll find there. It is the word selah. Do you see that there? Selah. It's at the end of verse 3, selah. At the end of verse 7, selah. At the end of verse 11, selah. Any idea what that word means? Pardon me? Think about it. Think about it. That's right. I come from Chicago. We think about it. Yeah. In Hebrew poetry, it is a word of instruction. That means pause. Pause. Take a breath. Think about what has just been said and let it sink in. And then reflect upon it before you go on and say another word. That's what it means. Selah. And it's a pause that completes the idea. And at the end of each of the three sessions, there is that one thought that overrides everything else. And that is, God is. You'll see it there. God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is our ever-present time help in time of trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. He is our fortress. Sila, 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 stop and think about that. That God is. Now, each one of those phrases anchors us to some solid truth that is found only in the current presence of God. You never find it in the Bible that God leads us to a refuge. He is a refuge. You never find in the Bible that he sends a prescription for faith to be filled out in some pharmacy someplace. He is our strength. You never find it in the Bible that he mails to you help in time of trouble. It's as if, as if almost like he is remaining one arm's length away from us. It's always personal with God. He is, he is, he is the one who wraps himself up in our destiny, and he is never more than a blink away, and prayer has, us, has him at our side because he is there. He is with us. Now that is a powerful thought. There are times whenever I pray and I think to myself, boy, I hope I'm not too late. And I, and I hope God's in his office. I hope he has time to hear. I hope he is there. And I hope that when he takes my case, he does it personally. He doesn't refer me to a call center somewhere halfway across the galaxy. I don't want to speak to a junior director. The scriptures come out and they say, he is there, current, present, existential. And he is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. I love the way one scholar, William Scroge, has put the spotlight on this psalm, Psalm 46. For him, it's the most colorful. And he says, Psalm 46 is to the Old Testament what Romans 8 is to the New Testament. And he goes on to say that if you get those together you will understand the confidence that we have. And you know that passage from Romans 8. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Selah. Stop. Think about it. Psalm 46, Romans 8, they stand together. And with words that put iron into your heart, gumption into your soul, steel right down your spine. No wonder 46, Psalm 46 was written to be remembered. You better have a grip on it wherever you go. You better know that a grip is upon you because God is. And the reason is because wherever you go, there's going to be danger. Look at verse 1, and you will find the first of three cases that are found in the three parts of Psalm 46. And as I've had it on your sermon outline there, as your world dissolves, you will not be given over to fear. As the world dissolves, we will not fear. Everywhere you're going to go, you're going to, you're going to face trouble. <laughs> trouble, 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 they're, they're, with a capital T. Um and, and that rings a bell every time I talk about trouble, because it'll be wherever you go. Now, now, I love the word that is used here, trouble. You'll notice that right away in verse 2, trouble. The Hebrew definition of the word trouble, it means to be, to be in a restricted or confined, caught in a narrow or cramped space, given no room to move. That's what trouble, that's, what, that's the picture of the trouble, the Hebrew word trouble paints. And, and we can think about that. I mean, we carry that over into English whenever we talk about I'm in a jam. Or I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. That's trouble with a capital T. But you know what? In the psalm it says that whenever you find yourself in such a place, God is also there as well. Selah. In verse 2, uh, two and 3, he is there, and as I have it on your sermon outline, he is there when your world begins to dissolve. Listen to the section. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake, or in the case of Elizabeth in England, shake, with their surging. Now, you know, I read that, and I think, to, you know, for those of us who live in the land of earthquakes, words like this might sound like prophecy. Some of you have actually been through an earthquake. Have any of you ever been through an earthquake? And you know what it's like? Suddenly, whoo, nothing is settled. Everything is in motion. It's a scene of havoc and helplessness. It's as if everything you've counted on gives way. And the earth shifts. And it rolls and it slides. And nothing is stable. But the fact is, you don't have to be in an earthquake or even a storm at sea to know what it feels like to have your world turn upside, to, uh, upside down, do you? But even as it happens, the psalmist says, we will not fear. And again, the way those words are written are incredibly significant. And it can be translated better this way. We will not take fear. Take hold of fear. Take fear to ourselves. We will not take fear. It's as if it takes a conscious decision to press a panic button or to pull the ejection ring or to do something that symbolizes a surrender to fear. 
When your world is, 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 is all shaken up, it's understandable to reach out and to be able to grab fear. And yet when God is there, your hand's already occupied, is it not? God is your refuge. God is your strength. God is your present help. And he's already got you in your hand, holding it, holding you. And, and if he is, you can't grab fear without letting go of him, who already has you in hand. So if for you God is, then when your world crumbles, you will not have to take hold of anything else, especially fear. Case number two. Nor will it shake you when his cause is threatened. Listen to verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. But the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, this may take a little bit of explanation. The subject here is the city of God, or Jerusalem. And as you read this, it becomes quickly apparent that the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, is under attack. And it says here, nations and kingdoms have risen up against her. And now you have to understand, in the mind of Israel, Jerusalem embodied everything that God stands for, everything that God intended for earth. And Jerusalem was the symbol for God's way of life and his intentions for the world. And here it appears as as if it's more than just a city that's under assault. It's the whole cause of God that is at risk. And I know that you know exactly how that feels. There is not a week that goes by that I don't talk with at least one Christian who is depressed about what is happening in society, in Canadian society today. The loss of value, the sense that we are on the losing side, It used to be that the church was respected. Now it is despised. It is ridiculed. People fear it. The way it sounds in the press, the greatest danger that we face as Canadians is that we might be in fear of becoming too religious. Whether it's with abortion or the definition of the family or morality or values, it appears every day that the cause of Christ is under siege. And there are many who are so weary and maybe so embarrassed that they are tempted to run away from the name Christian and hide. Look at verse 5. Because God is within her, she, the embodiment of God's people, you and me, will not fall. The New American Standard Version has a better translation. It is, because God is, we will not be moved. And the term move, be moved, literally means to teeter or tobble, totter or go all wobbly. But when God is on his throne and when he is in your heart, you have everything with, within you to stand strong. Selah. Think about that. When my world crumbles, I will not fear. When God's cause is threatened, I will not be moved. Case three, when the day is done, I will be at peace. Listen to the last four verses as I read them there in Psalm 46. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. 
to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Now, the scene here needs to be explained. As it is painted, it is a battlefield. And it is filled with the reminders of war. The ground is, the ground is strewn with the litter of conflict. The, the chariots are burning. The weapons are scattered and broken. There is dust rising in the air and smoke. And a sad silence covers the scene. It's the aftermath of war. And like a survivor, the child of God finds themselves wandering through that landscape of desolation. And those of you, I know there are some here who know that sense of shock because you have been familiar with the aftermath of war. And you carry it with you, something almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of you have gone through family heartache and, and, and career disruption, and, and you carry with you regrets and remorse that are like the aftermath of war. And you find yourself somewhat broken inside, and no matter the size of the victory, it's the shock of the battle that is left and, 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 and has, has stolen from you the energy to move on. It's as if you are haunted by the sights of your memories. And here God takes you in hand, and he says, be still, be still, and know that I am God. I was with you, I am with you, and you will be with me as I am exalted, which is an everlasting life. I have talked with people who have had close brushes to death. Maybe a car accident. I had a friend who describes this car accident and had, and, and, and he barely survived. And now, every time he passes the scene, he finds himself tightening up. It's an involuntary reaction. His breath shortens and his muscles tighten. And he finds himself living out that motto, uh, once burned, twice shy. And he has to take himself in hand and be able to say, be still. In order to allow himself to hear God's voice say, I am with you, and let it go. Be still, still, cease striving, and know that I am God, or simply know God as the Hebrew has it. One of the better books that I've written over, uh, read over the last few years, it's a book called The, the Survivor's Club, and it's written by Ben Sherwood. It's a massive study on human survival and that, that has tracked several hundred true stories of regular people, simple people, normal people, not superheroes, certainly not, and no Marvel comic will ever be written after their lives. These are just human beings, several hundred of them, who have survived devastating disasters. Everything from airplane crashes to savage animal attacks to concentration camps. A study of these regular people who have been profoundly tested by life and yet in the face of overwhelming odds have survived. 
The study that he wrote, this guy Ben Sherwood, investigated all of the factors and the mindsets and the habits that are shared by the most effective survivors. And I shouldn't have been surprised by his conclusion. Listen to what he writes in his book. He said, when I started, I was skeptical of the role of faith in survival. But as I began to interview survivors around the world, I noticed a remarkable pattern. Overwhelmingly, they all shared a belief that God and faith had sustained them through their trials. Indeed, I began to feel admiration for their faith, and I envied their certitude. Perhaps the most unexpected spot where I encountered faith was at the Naval Survival Training Institute in Pensacola, Florida, where I met with Ray Smith, the author of How to Survive on Land and Sea. I began uh, with a simple question. uh, What's the secret of survival? And without hesitating, he answered, faith in God. Really, I asked. Absolutely, he said. It's a major factor in all of survival scenarios. In fact, while he was editing his survival manual, Smith wanted to start it all with a preface and a verse from Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's not appropriate, he was told by his publisher. (laughs) But he insisted, and you don't argue with a Navy SEAL. But he insisted, and ultimately he prevailed. He feels so strongly about faith that he thinks it properly belongs as the first chapter of any book on survival. In military parlance, he says, it is a force multiplier, a factor that significantly increases or multiplies your strength and your effectiveness. When you are feeling weak, he says, faith pumps you up. When you are run down, it gives you a boost. When you are discouraged, it lifts you up. If you want to grasp the power of faith and survival, consider this extraordinary fact. People who go to church regularly live around seven years longer than people who don't. That's a fact. Aren't you glad you're here? To be still and know God to let things go and relax knowing that he has it in hand. And somehow this vision of God overarches the past and the future and it makes the present an opportunity to pause with a stillness that is so profound. God is with me. God is with us. Which only brings the question, is God with you? It's a matter of faith. Just a few years ago, Aaron Jeffries wrote a song that ran through the entire Bible, every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Exodus. The title of his song was, He Is. And at all points, with each of the books of the Bible, the message was clear, that God is there, that Jesus walks step by step, page by page, book by book through the Bible. Let me just deal with the New Testament portion of that song. He writes in his song, or I guess he sings in his song, I will read it. In Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is God, man, Messiah. In the 
book of Acts, he is fire from heaven. In Romans, he is the grace of God. In Corinthians, he is the power of love. In Galatians, he is freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, he is our glorious treasure. In Philippians, the servant's heart. In Colossians, he is the Godhead Trinity. Thessalonians, our coming king. In Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he is our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he is the everlasting covenant. In James, he is the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, he is our shepherd. In John and in Jude, he is the lover coming for his bride. In Revelation, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is, he is, he is the prince of peace, the son of man, the lamb of God, the great I am. He is the alpha and the omega, our God and our savior. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And when time is no more, he is, he is, he is. So I ask you again, with that vision of the Lord who has loved you, a vision that overarches time and space, past, present, and future, will you pause in the seal a moment of your own, even right now, to pray a simple prayer, knowing that he is here. Lord Jesus Christ, you are mine and I am yours and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray that together with me? Lord Jesus Christ, you are mine, and I am yours forevermore. Amen. And Lord, make us ever sensitive to your presence. We live a life in search of solutions. Lord, help us know that we live a life in your presence, and in that is the solution to all things. This we pray in the powerful and the wonderful name of the one who loved us and gave himself to us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.